This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell sports stories on our show. And today we have one of the best. University of Tennessee basketball coach Pat Summit, one of the greatest coaches to ever step foot on a court or field anywhere. During her 38 years of coaching, all of her players graduated from college, and she impacted those around her far beyond the basketball court. And today, Faith brings us her story. When I played for her, I thought, man, this lady's crazy. She, she's crazy. And I'd go out of the gym going, I, I don't think I can do it. Pat said, it's a lot easier to start tough and get nicer than it is to start nice and get tougher. What do you not understand about passive every time? I didn't mind holding people accountable. I knew I had a lot to learn, but I also knew that coaching was my passion. That was Pat Summit coach of the University of Tennessee Lady Vols. Her blue eyes and strong stare made her players simultaneously love her and fear her. Pat Summit's name has become synonymous with women's basketball. She was born Patricia Sue Head on June 14, 1952, in Clarksville, Tennessee. Pat took the game to the highest level that it's ever been. People may not have known as much as they should have known about women's basketball, but if you said Pat Summit, then everybody knows, oh, she's the coach at Tennessee who always wins national championships. So there are a lot of sports out there that are only defined by the people that are running the most important programs. Uh, you may not know every coach in every sport, but in women's basketball, every kid that ever played, every coach that ever coached, I think knew what Pat Summit was doing, who she was, where she coached. And you know what? Uh, at the end, Uh, they're going to forget the wins, they're going to forget the losses, they're going to forget how many championships she won. They're not going to remember conference titles. None of that's going to stick. What's going to stick is when they say, women's basketball, Pat Summit. Those two things will never be separated. That was Gino Oriema, coach of the University of Connecticut Huskies. They had one of the most tense competitive relationships in women's college basketball. Gina once said of Pat that familiarity breeds contempt. But his comments go to show that in the end, his respect for her and the sport went beyond their rivalry. Here is Mike Krzyzewski, the head coach of Duke, talking about Pat. One of the great coaches of any sport, you know, let alone you know, basketball, uh, was Pat Summit. I can remember uh, early in my career, Sam Newton uh, one of the great guys in, in men's college basketball you know, wanted to hire her to be a men's coach and said, look, you should go to one of her practices. She knows how to coach. And she, she really put women's basketball out there. In other words, uh, what she did with recruiting, accomplishment, championships, really set the foundation for where women's basketball is in our country right now you know you if you wanted to really get the start that's where you will go to pat summit and then it started from there 
it started from there. And obviously, you know, today, you, you know, Gino's done an unbelievable job at Connecticut, but that would not have been without Pat. Pat Summit worked as a grad assistant for the UT Lady Vols. But then, the head coach unexpectedly stepped down. And from 1974 to 2012, besides her son, basketball and the UT Lady Vols were her life. Here's Marcia Sharp, former head coach of University of Texas Tech, talking about Pat's influence on the sport. I don't suppose that there's really the right words to talk about uh, her legacy or what she meant to women's basketball. When you get a job when you're a grad assistant and turn it into something like she did, it's the most remarkable story in sports in so many ways. And particularly for uh, women in sports at that time, Title IX had just become law and um, it was kind of a perfect storm when she came along and started that program. This little Southern girl changed the presence of women's basketball and women in sports in general. We had a dairy farm. I just remember milking cows 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. I don't think my grandfather knew what to do with my mom. He just assumed, hey, I can just treat her like the boys, and that's what she became. We were strict on him. Of course, he was a little more stricter than I was. You know, it generally goes that way. My father, he was the one that probably inspired me the most. Times he challenged me and said, I don't know if you'll ever be able to do this. And, of course, that's all I needed to hear. I don't think that she planned to be a pioneer, but I think that she was comfortable being the pioneer. She didn't smash through glass ceilings. She was a glass cutter. You know, she was sort of etch away, you know, at the glass ceiling until she popped out a big old square. We have to have more television exposure. That's going to be significant. Summit began her coaching career before women's basketball was an NCAA sanctioned sport. And just two years after Title IX came into play, the legislation that created more athletic opportunities for women. Her personal basketball career was played from 1970 to 1974 at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Pat Summit was then in the Olympic Games in 1976. She co-captained the United States women's national basketball team as a player in the inaugural women's tournament. They won the silver medal. She then returned to the Olympics in 1984 as head coach and led the U.S. women's team to the gold medal. She was the first in U.S. Olympic basketball history to play on and coach medal-winning teams. She didn't begin as a legend, but she certainly became one. And when we come back, more of the life and story of Pat Summit. And she was born on this day in history. In 1952 are these days in histories, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More on Pat Summit's life after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of the life of Pat Summit. We heard about how she played on and coached medal-winning Olympic basketball teams, and now we're about to hear more of her amazing life story. Pat Summit won an enormous percentage of her games that she coached. But of course, you can't win them all. Here she recalls what her first loss felt like. I remember the first loss probably more than the first win. Um, And we played uh, Mercer University. They were good. And I knew after the game that I had, um, I had not, I just didn't do a good job. You know, and I I was young and I, I just wasn't experienced enough. Uh, or confident enough probably Um, and I remember calling home and my mother answered the phone and we were chit-chatting and she goes Trish how you doing I go doing great mom never even asked me about the game probably didn't even know we were playing or if she did she probably just forgot about it because she she never was into sports and I said "Um, is dad there and uh, she said yes and I said "Um, is okay I talked to him, because he, he didn't like talking on the phone much. And she said yes, so she handed him the phone. And he, I've never heard him say hello. He said, all right. Well, I was so nervous, because I knew, you know, he knows how competitive we all are, and he's competitive. And, and I said, hey, Dad. And he goes, did you win? And I said, no, sir. We lost. Long pause. And I didn't know what he was going to say, other than you need to get out of coaching. But he said, um, so you lost? I said, yes, sir. He said, let me tell you one thing. You don't take donkeys to the Kentucky Derby. You better get you some race horses. And he hung up. <laughs> but I knew what he was saying to me. And it, it, it really shaped me in terms of my philosophy to understand that you win in life with people. You know, it's not about me. I've never scored a basket for the University of Tennessee. You know, and I'm starting my 36th year. It's all about the people you surround yourself with and what they bring to the court, to the game, and uh, to understanding that it is a team concept and they have to do it together. Pat Summit's personal life was filled with determination as well. Before she had her son Tyler, she endured six miscarriages. I think the... The one achievement in my life that means the most to me is the birth of my son, Tyler. He's just a gift from God, and he's just been, he's just been so special in so many ways. Um, because as much as I've taught him, I think he's probably taught me even more. It's so special, you know. All the things I hear about my mom, you know, all the, the championships, the wins, you know, all the Olympic players, you know, all the players who played for her and are now coaches, you know, things like that, everything she's done. And then for her to say that, you know, that about me, it's just, it makes me feel so special. People have heard the story when I got cut, you know, my sixth grade year and, you know, it was, I was heartbroken and, you know, I I think maybe part of me thought that because I was her son, I might make it, you know, just, just solely on that. And I didn't work as hard as I could have. I, I walk in the room and I said, Tyler, what, what's wrong with you? And he goes, I got cut. Well, my first thought is what coach in East Tennessee would cut my son? I mean, think about it. You know, put him at the end of the bench, but give him a uniform. 
And then I guess the, the, the coach came out in me, and I looked at Tyler and I said, he was, had a basketball under each arm. He, he was crying so hard. And, uh, and she goes, well, do you think you worked hard enough? And I knew I didn't, I said no. And she said, well, now you know what you gotta do. And I was like, you know, I wanted her because I knew she knew everything about basketball. And he goes, mom, will you help me? I said, son, I will help you, but I will not start your engine. You must start your engine every day. Do you understand that? And he goes, yes, ma'am. So every day, you know, that I wanted her to help me, I would have to go to her. It wouldn't be her pushing me. You gotta be self-motivated, and that's another thing she taught me It's really important. And if you ever saw her coach, you would know she was tough as nails. But at the same time, cared about her players more than anyone could. Here is what she sounded like in the locker room at halftime. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. It's a team that really wants it, that has everybody committed to what they have to do. And we didn't have everybody committed in that first half. Everybody understand that? This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. And you have to know, did I not say we've got to be competitive, right? We've got to have communication, but we must have composure. We didn't have composure all the time. And have a sense of urgency anytime we call something, whether it's press, whether it's offense, whatever we're calling, you got a sense of urgency. You want to get something done, and you want to get it done collectively. So all five people have to get where they need to get in a timely fashion, all right? That's what you have to do. And, and, and so no one, no one on the floor has, has any reason to hesitate or not be competitive at that moment. Got me, Don? Sense of urgency. Every possession. Every possession matters. Take white pride in every possession. It's a game of possessions. It's also a game of wheels. See how tough we are. Her intensity was hard to match, and so was her passion but yet she expected it from all of her players. Anyone like that is bound to make a difference on those around them. And Pat's impact went far beyond women's basketball, reaching those like football player Peyton Manning. During his years at the University of Tennessee, he went to a lot of Lady Vol games. While watching her coach, he developed a respect for her. While this is the story about Pat Summit, the coach, it's also about who she was as a person, as a mom, and as a friend. She was an amazing woman on and off the court. Why was it that her character transcended basketball? It was her authenticity. During her time as a coach, she accrued 1,098 career wins, the most in women's college basketball history upon her retirement. And she won eight NCAA championships. In the year 2000, she was given her rightful place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. During her time as a coach, she had 161 players coached by her from the University of Tennessee Lady Vols. This was the desire for all the players that came through her program. When they leave here, obviously, they leave here uh, with a college degree. Hopefully, uh, they leave here with a national championship. But... The most important part of that is they leave here as confident young women that are ready to go out into the world and and be secure in who who they are and move forward and be successful. 
And when our student athletes leave here, I mean, they're ready for the world. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that they are going to be successful in whatever they do. I know players leave here and they fight, you know, they, they have adversity in their own lives. Maybe some in, in, the, in the pro game. Um, you know, dealing with family and family issues. And I think they just, they have a, a preparation that allows them to be able to get through adversity, to be able to understand that you know, it doesn't last forever and you, you have to figure out a way uh, to be successful. In August 2011, Pat Summit announced that she had been diagnosed with early onset dementia, Alzheimer's type. Here she is talking about it with her son. You know, I, I just felt something was different. And, uh, you know, I, at the time I didn't know what I was dealing with. And until I went to the Mayo Clinic, I, I couldn't be for sure. But I can remember, you know, you know being trying to, to coach and, and trying to figure out schemes and whatever. And I just it just wasn't coming to me like... I typically would say, oh, hey, we're going to do this, going to run that. I think it probably caused me to, you know, second guess. And I know when I was talking with Mickey, you know, and, and I just, she said, you know, what's, what's going on with you? And I said, I don't know. You know, I don't know. And so, you know, I was glad that we went to the Mayo Clinic because, you know, Dr. Peterson was great. They were all great, and at least I knew then, you know, what, what I was dealing with. But, you know, it's, it's hard to fight an invisible opponent, and I think that now we know what we're up against, um, and we're ready, we're ready to take the next chapter in our lives. This would be the new battle she would have to face. And when we come back, more on the life of Pat Summit. And again, she was born on this day in history in 1952. Pat Summit's story, here on Our American Stories. stories and we've been listening to the life of Pat Summit and we learned that in 2011 she was diagnosed with dementia Alzheimer's type she and her son Tyler set out to fight this terrible disease and we pick up with faith coach Summit finished out the 2011-2012 season but with her assistant coach Harley Warlick who has been with her since 1985, doing most of the coaching. Here, Coach Warlick shares one of her favorite stories about the tough head coach, Pat Summit. You know, y'all know how intense Pat is. I mean, just off the chain. And uh, we, we sent our kids off to a 
for the summer, and we wanted to, on their own. They had to go work out, and we made sure they, they had to get in shape. You have to come back in shape. And some of the kids meant it mean, meant to lose. Back when you could talk about weight, some of them you, you had to lose 10 pounds, 15 pounds. We can't tell them to lose pounds. We just got to tell them to get in shape now. But Pat told this young lady, you know, you got to come, you got to get, you got to get back, you got to lose 15 pounds. It's the bottom line. So um, we all, at the beginning of, um, of the year, we have, we, we meet as a, a staff and a team, and we come in, and uh, right when they go back to school, where well, this young lady came in, and Pat was like, are you kidding me? She goes, get back in my office right now. And so the little girl went back and got in the office, and she sat down, and she goes, what have you been doing? She goes, well, I've been, no, you've been doing nothing. You have been doing nothing. She goes, I, I, what did I tell you before you left? Uh, she, I told you to lose 15 pounds. You're not getting back on the court till you get lose 15 pounds. You got, the girl's like about to bust out crying. She goes, uh, she goes, uh, you, you're, just leave, just leave. The kid gets up and leaves, and she's like, goes and gets him. In uh, the team meeting, and Pat calls me in there and goes, I just chewed so-and-so out. And I said, really? Okay. So we went back into the meeting, all right? And so we get in the meeting, and we go around and tell each other what our, the names are and what class you are. And I'm Abby Conklin. I'm a senior. And, uh, you know, and, I, I'm, and I come up, and this young lady goes, and <laughs> she says, uh, hi, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Beth Bartell. And I, I'm a manager, I think. <laughs> and so here's the great part, too. As we're going around, Pat all of a sudden got red and just started looking around to, to me and goes, oh, my God, I just talked to her, and she's a manager. And I went, what? And so she says, don't tell anybody. So I went, I won't. Mickey, do you know what Pat did? <laughs> you know what Pat did? So, yeah. So if you're going to be a manager, you better get under the weight requirement. <laughs> Just five years after her diagnosis, Pat Summit passed away. In order to give her all the honor she deserved, a celebration of life for Pat Summit was held on July 16, 2016, where many came to speak about her at the Thompson Bowling Arena, located on the University of Tennessee, the home of Pat's beloved Lady Vols. Holly Warlick, Peyton Manning, and of course her son Tyler all spoke, and a few of her players as well. Her son Tyler spoke first. In front of him was the stool that she would sit on every game. But something that I also want to celebrate tonight is my mom's heart, her enormous heart. And I'm here to tell you that inwardly, behind the scenes, she had three hearts, the heart of a mother, a heart for others, and a heart for Jesus Christ. And so let's start with the heart of a mother. I heard three words every single day of my life. I love you. Every day. Didn't matter how busy she was, what she had to do, she took the time to stop and tell me that. And not only did she say it, but she showed it. She walked the talk. You might think that the famous coach, Pat Summit might not have time for the normal parental duties like, let's say, cooking dinner. But... I'm here to tell you the majority of my life, I'm talking six or seven nights a week, my mom was home cooking dinner. And her favorite mom story to tell was uh, one time when I was playing soccer 
Um, at halftime, I, I ran over to her imaginary stool on the sideline, and I look up and I say, hey, mom, you know, how am I doing? Well, she looked down and she said, oh, you're doing all right. That's not Pat Summit. So I said, no, come on, mom. How am I doing? And she first took her sunglasses off and got eye level with me. That's when I knew I was in for it. She said, son, you're not being aggressive. Get after the ball. Run after it. Don't be scared to get physical out there. Yes, ma'am. So I run back out there with those six-year-olds and folks. I was everywhere. I was all over the field. I was knocking people down. So I run back over to my, my coach after the game, and I get some harsh criticism from him as well. And so I'm, I walk back to mom. I said, mom, I'm confused. You know, you tell me to be more aggressive, but my coach tells me I'm playing out of my position. She hadn't realized I was the goalie. <laughs> she wanted to help any and everybody, no matter if she knew the rules or not. And that, that brings me to her second heart, a heart for others. And she had it. I guarantee you there are so many people in this building, so many people watching right now that have stories of Pat Summit walking 100 miles an hour and then stopping on a dime to sign an autograph for a little girl, to say thank you to the janitor or the cafeteria worker. That was her heart for others. She had a heart for all of us. She was the strongest person I have ever known or that I ever will know. <clears throat> but a lot of people don't know where that strength came from. Her favorite Bible verse was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. She had a heart for Jesus. One of my favorite memories uh, was back in 2012 when we were baptized together again in front of friends and family. Another example of her faith uh, was in the last few days of her life when I'm sitting there by her side and for a son to hear some come up to her and say, Pat, I love you. Thank you. You brought me closer to God. It's the most incredible feeling a son can ever have for his mother, a child can ever have for a parent. She showed her faith through her actions and I know in that way, but in so many others. I'm still learning so much from my mom. I still have so much to learn from her. But here's what she would want now. For all of us that in some way have been influenced by Pat Summit, she wouldn't just want us to remember her example. She would want us to go out and to follow it. So let's not just celebrate her legacy. Let's now carry it on. And what beautiful words. Whenever we can, folks, we love to bring these words straight to you. This is a son talking about his mom, a mom so many Americans knew but didn't know. How many of you knew about her walk as a Christian? I didn't. And by the way, wouldn't we all want to be eulogized by a son or a daughter like this? Proof of a life beautifully lived. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, 
And thanks to Hillsdale, so many of their courses, so much of the coursework is available to this entire country, free and online, for families, for homeschoolers, for adults who never really had the chance to learn the things that they always would have wanted to learn about the Constitution, about American history, about the Greeks, about Plato, C.S. Lewis, Shakespeare, all of it. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. The courses are free. And what you learn, boy, it's invaluable. When we come back, more on the life of Pat Summit, more eulogies, more stories. Here on Our American Stories. return to the story of Coach Pat Summit, and we left off with her loved ones sharing their memory of Pat at her celebration of life services, and we now return to the Thompson Bowling Arena in Tennessee, where the event took place. Here, Tamika Catchings, who played for the Lady Vols from 97 to 2001, shared the first time she saw Pat. I was in eighth grade the first time I came across Pat Summit indirectly. I was sitting at home, flipping through the channel, and all of a sudden, I stopped, drawn into an icy blue stare of the one and only. (laughs) I was hypnotized instantly, and for whatever reason, couldn't pull away from the screen. I remember thinking to myself, even then, I just hope I get good enough to play for this lady. The passion, the stare, The determination, the willpower, the fight, that's what I wanted. We can never prepare for a moment like this, although ultimately we know it will come. But I don't know why Pat seemed invincible in every single way. I knew coming to UT that I would be pushed and that I would be challenged, but I believe that all of us Lady Vol welcomed that. And we were all willing to be molded into the people that we are today. Pat was more than our coach. She was our friend. She was our mentor. She was our leader. She was our mother. She was our father. And for me, she was my quiet through my storm. While we didn't speak every day, I knew that she was just a phone call away. When I look out over the sea of our Lady of All family, we are all brought together, joined in unity for this moment because of our wonderful leader, Pat. I can't imagine how different our lives would have been if we had chosen anywhere but here. We came here to play ball and to get an education, but we left with so much more. While she valued what we did on the court, she valued even more what we did in the classroom, the community, and ultimately that we would all individually what we would bring to the world. There have been a lot of tears shed over the past month as we watched our heroes slip away from the earthly realm to the heavenly one. And while it's been tough, the amazing stories that have been shared over the past few weeks have made this celebration a little bit easier. I know Pat is looking down and continues to look down on each of us as we celebrate her life today and what she means and has done for so many of us. She gave us hope 
she gave us direction. She gave us a sense of coolness through what we did on and off the court. She was the epitome of what being great is all about. And that bubbled over to us through her expectation for each one of us. We must be great. Standing here today, I go back to the phone call Pat made to me when she was diagnosed with dementia. She said, Ketch, don't be scared. I'm going to fight like none other. Well, through her fight and continuous fight, Pat has showed us how strong to be and how great to be once again. Holly Warlick shares a story of a time that Coach Summit was pulled over by a cop. Pat had a little, had a need for speed. Pat got pulled over a lot. <laughs> I often wondered how did she avoid so many tickets? Well, Pat had a plan. You know, she always had a plan. Well, she started keeping her purse in the trunk. She'd get pulled over, and the officer would say, Obviously, can I see your license? Well, officer, let me, my purse is in the trunk. Can I just get out of my car and get it? She gets out, opens her trunk, and there's about a half a dozen basketballs that just so happened to be signed by Pat Summit. (laughs) Of course, the police officer would say, can I get one of those autographed balls? And Pat goes, why, of course. And we all know what the next line was going to be. Now, you slow down, Miss Pat. All of a sudden, they were on first-name basis. So I started out as a kid from Knoxville, Tennessee, with a dream. My dream, it came true. But I found a coach, a mentor, and a great friend all in one. Pat was gracious. She had an unbelievable sense of humor, and she actually was able to laugh at herself. She was tough but kind, and when she used my last name, Warlick, it was not good. (laughs) Pat had a way of getting everything out of you. Now, I would get in trouble for, it wasn't really bad. I'd get in trouble, and I would, before I'd go into Pat's office, I would say, I'm not saying a word. Well, when I walked in and that door shut, and it's me and Pat Summit, I would sing, and she'd go, you, I, know, I already know everything, so you might as well just tell the truth. I know everything you did. I just start singing like a little canary. So much for my, my being able to hold back. Pat enjoyed life, and life loved her back. And Peyton Manning shares his last respects for Pat Summit. Pat Summit didn't just change the history of Tennessee basketball or make this arena notable well beyond the borders of this state. She changed the history of the sport she loved and of sports in general. She almost single-handedly made women's sports relevant well beyond mothers and daughters, sisters and grandmothers. Heck, every Tennessee football player, including me, would have been proud to have been coached by Pat Summit. And when she keynoted the Tennessee annual football spring clinic a number of years ago, Coach David Cutcliffe will tell you that she mesmerized that day a room full of crusty football coaches like no other speaker has done before or since. And when Pat finished, 
Coach Kutch said she got the greatest standing ovation of anyone, including legendary coaches like Bo Beckler and Pat Dye. Nineteen years ago, I came to see Pat Summit deciding whether I should stay for my junior or senior year, and I sat in her office for two hours. She gave me great advice on what she thought I should do. As a coach and as a person, Pat did more than outthink uncertainty and stare down competitors. She stared down doubts. If you were recruited by Pat and her staff, it was like a casting call for greatness. She epitomized the Lady Vols. More than that, and because of her actions, she gave new depth and dimension to the word lady. When I returned to Knoxville throughout the years, or Pat would travel to Indianapolis to see Tamika play for the Indiana Fever, we'd make a point to get together over a steak and a beer. Last summer, I was in Knoxville, and I knew that Pat wasn't doing so well. Coach Fulmer and I decided to drive over to visit our old friend. We knew she probably wouldn't know our names, and she didn't, but that wasn't the point. Pat smiled a lot as we sat and, and spent time with her, and she seemed to just enjoy having our company. We didn't know if it even mattered that we were there, but deep inside, we both hoped it would. Two weeks ago, at Pat's funeral, Shamiqua Holtzclaw and I caught up with each other again. She, like so many of Pat's former players, stayed in close contact with her. Shamiqua told me that even as Pat's memory continued to fade, if Pat saw one of my games or commercials on TV, she pointed at the screen and said, that's my friend. He comes to visit me. There goes my friend. Two weeks ago at her gravesite, the tears rolled down my cheeks. After I left, I got a text from Sally Jenkins that reminded me of Pat's words to anyone in enough agony to come crying to her. With a nudge full of kindness and a move-on mentality, she'd tell them, toughen up, buttercup. <laughs> Just take a look around this room. There are lots of tears, and yes, I feel the sting of my own. So in the spirit of Pat, I'll echo her own words. Toughen up, buttercup. And in saying goodbye for the last time, we can all say, there goes our friend. She left having coached 1,306 games, and her wins off the court include starting the Pat Summit Foundation for Alzheimer's, the foundation to help find a cure for Alzheimer's so that one day no family has to hear that a loved one has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She died 14 days after her 64th birthday in Knoxville, Tennessee, in a senior living facility. She left all her assets to her son, Tyler. And in another way, through her career, she had given everything she had to women's basketball. We end with Pat sharing her best piece of life advice. To look in the mirror and see yourself and challenge yourself to be the very best and to always do the right thing and again, never compromise your principles, never lower your standards. Whatever it is that you desire to do in life, have the courage and the commitment to do it and to do it to your absolute best. And always, always know that you have to believe it to do it. This is Faith Garcia and this 
is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. I hope to get good enough to play for this lady, that former player of Pat Summit said. I think we all wish we could have been good enough to play for that lady on the field of life. Toughen up, Buttercup. What a great line. Six miscarriages, folks. Six miscarriages. And the love of her life, Tyler. Well, it just proves that with perseverance, anything is possible. The life of Pat Summit, told here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by The Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know, Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse. Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person. Uh, I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. The original version was from a man's point of view. What you want, what if you got it? And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, piano by the window, watching the cars go by. And uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliche. The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props. My propers when you get home. 
in modern hip-hop terminology. And that line there... TCB is an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words for music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. TCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love Cry. This now song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <laughs> This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still going to do it anyway. <laughs> Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists and gospel blues artists. But Otis had this song, Respect, which was his expression of hard-working then Southern black man <clears throat> coming home after a week at work and saying, we're going to dance and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that and they didn't mind those pin curls and telling me you don't feel well and this. we're going to dance and talk. we're going to party, give me my dude, give me my respect. That was, that was the significance of Otis' song. And it was a male macho work with me, Annie, let's dance tonight song. Okay? Um, three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years and where all of a sudden Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib, black women's lib song where... Here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the wilderness. No, don't hit me no more. She's, come on, give me my propers when I get home. R-E-S-P. And she tears the pants off the song. It was the same song. It was a hit both times. It just depended which world you were living in, which one you liked. But damn, it was a hot song. While Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Stories. To hear more, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org.
is Our American Stories, and we love our American Dreamers series. We brought you a lot of them. Stories of entrepreneurs who've overcome really difficult odds to create companies, create jobs, create a tax base. It's the American dream, folks, getting out there and starting something, whether you're Steve Jobs or whether you've got the local auto body shop and you're employing some people and doing what you love, a restaurant, whatever. And as always, our American Dreamers series are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are out there fighting for public policies that make sense for helping small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. And today's story, like so many of them, is a real stem winder because growing a business is no duck walk. And they face mortal, mortal moments where they think everything's lost. We think they're as good as police procedurals, these stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story on a member of the Job Creators Network, Bob Luddy, the founder of Captivare, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And this story is a real stem winder. If you think about people that come into the company today, they see a very prosperous company. That's all they know about the company. If you go back to the early days, you'd have a, quite a different picture. And that every day was, can we survive one more day? That was the mission every single day. In the early 80s, we were in somewhat of a recession. We switched our payroll to monthly. I thought if we paid at the end of the month, surely we would be able to collect enough money during the month where payroll will not be an issue. Well, it turned out it was a big issue June 30th, 1980, because we had a $30,000 payroll with $2,000 in the bank. I even think back and I wonder how I finessed this. Basically, I told the employees, which was about 18 in number, that we were not able to make our payroll today for technical reasons. That's all I told them. And they mostly went along with it. They really didn't cause a lot of grief about it. So Monday went by, no money, and then Tuesday night, I had already received the mail. I decided to go back to the post office at 8 p.m. And there was a check for $28,000 from the Golden Corral, almost precisely to the dollar what I needed to make that payroll. So essentially, I was bailed out by a major customer who, in this case, paid their bill early. Go figure. It speaks very highly of your employees that they didn't really ask what the technical reason was. I, I'm pretty sure my wife would have uh, asked, what do, you, what do you mean a technical reason? Like, <laughs> you earned that money and I have bills to pay here. Didn't you ask him what the technical reason was? You know, in a modern context, I can't even imagine that I could get away with that. I mean, people would be crazy. But somehow we did. Bob writes in his book, I'd done everything humanly possible to save the company. So now all that remained was the grace of God. I mean, I have a great trust in God that if we do our part and we ask for help, he will provide that help. And I think if I didn't have that belief in God, it would be a lot harder to function in the marketplace. One of the things I think you find very interesting in the market is that these companies that are Christian-based, Chick-fil-A is maybe a primary example, they're enormously successful in the market. People admire them, and people want to do business with them. In our construction business, a lot of 
things go on that shouldn't go on, and we've never participated in them. One of our veteran sales guys called me one day and said, Bob, I figured out why we're so successful. I said, well, tell me why. He says, because we're a legitimate company. We do things honestly, correctly. We don't play games. And the market price appreciates the way we do business. I went, hallelujah. And if you think about today, the trouble individuals get into because they violate human decency, basic Ten Commandments, common law, is enormous. Conversely, the ones who are legitimate just continue to do better and better all the time because that's what the market wants. That's who they're going to do business with. Lessons that Bob began learning not too long after coming out of the womb. His Pennsylvania family didn't have much money and had 10 mouths to feed. It was competitive even in eating because we had a limited amount of food. So you better be at the table and get your share or you may end up short of food that day. So to get money, Bob had to make his own. Starting in elementary school, he delivered newspapers, shoveled snow, and babysat. And at age 11, he was working on a bread truck on weekends. Eventually worked in the drugstore during high school. The pharmacist was my mentor teaching me the basic skills of business, uh, retail, inventory, delivery, dealing with customers who are difficult. Uh, It's almost as if I should have been paying him. This idea of first job is much more important in terms of learning life skills than actually making any money. And yet it's been turned around now that you should be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Well. I don't know what 85 cents an hour would be today, maybe 10 bucks. Actually, it would be even less, $7.15. If minimum wage were $15, I never got that job. It would have made a profound, profoundly negative impact on my life. So I think that very, very often in modern contexts, whether it's the news media, consultants, academics, they really turn life upside down. And if you think about it, when I grew up in the 50s, life was a little different, a little bit less regulated. You couldn't work on a bread truck today at age 11. They put mom in jail for child abuse. But it was an important part of my life. Nobody got hurt. Everybody seemed to be a winner. So allowing parents to make decisions and allowing individuals to find the best that they can within the market they exist is important. And it's precluded now by massive regulation, misconceptions, etc. Bob went on to college, and he didn't particularly want to. He didn't like school. But his dad wanted all the kids to go, so that's what he did. And after two years, he really wanted to get out. So this 20-year-old decided that buying into a fiberglass business was what he ought to do to stay sane. Fast forward nine years, by this time, Bob had been drafted into the Vietnam War, forced to sell his company to serve, and now was married and working in L.A. until he just couldn't stand the traffic any longer. And so he researched the areas of the country most likely to grow economically, and they'd move to one of them. And he chose Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a leap. I had no contacts, no job, didn't know anybody. When I got here, I thought, maybe this wasn't the smartest idea in the world. 
Bob applied to every single job that was listed in the newspaper. And after two months of this, someone finally called and offered him an opportunity to sell fire suppression systems to restaurants. He did well, purchased their first home, and had his first kid until the CEO made a Sunday announcement to the sales team. Our pay was going to get cut about one-third. So I was making 30000 a year. Now I'm going to make 20000 a year. And my initial thought was I ought to be able to make 20000 a year on my own. Starting his own similar business. The second thought was I'm not well prepared. I don't have capital. I should have been more prepared for this day, but I'm, I'm not. And then I had a third thought, essentially said, look, there's times in your life when you have to take major risks, and this is one of those times. And if you fail to take that risk, other opportunities may come along, but this is your time to go. I think one of the things that came out of that is the fact that knowing that the, the risks were extremely high, I knew I'd have to go to all extreme possible efforts to make this thing work. I decided to use my home phone so I didn't have to do anything there. I got some business cards printed, and by Saturday, I made my first installation. So from Sunday, working for a company, to the following, the end of the week, I went from being employed to being self-employed. The nature of how I learned to do things, particularly for my mother, is she called it tomorrow never comes, meaning that if you're not doing it today, you're probably never going to do it. Even today, I do it today, I do it immediately. This is a good idea, I want to hear about it now. Versus the bureaucratic mind that says, yeah, we're going to do that, I'll put on my list, I'll contemplate it. I'm much more of a person of action. And so that action allowed us to get underway right away. And the first check I received from the Saturday installation bounced. <laughs> And when we come back, more of this American Dreamer's story, Bob Luddy's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American Dreamers segment, Bob Luddy and the founder of Captive Air, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And by the way, we heard some really remarkable stories about how we almost didn't make it. Well, we continue now with the story. He's already shaken up one industry and a few unintentional experiences would lead him to try and shake up another. I had a woman who worked part-time taking care of my children after school, and she needed some more work, so I told her to come over to the office. We didn't really know what to do with her, so we, I said, well, have her do filing. So someone came to me and said, well, she's not able to do filing. And I said, no, come on, anybody can do filing. Just show her how to do it, she'll be fine. 
And what we figured out is she didn't know her ABCs. So that was my first inkling that I was clueless. Later on in our shop, we realized that individuals could use a tape measure if it was increments of one inch. But if it was one inch and one sixteenth, they couldn't read it conceptually. They didn't understand it. And I thought, how is it possible that someone could graduate from high school, but they couldn't do fractions? They didn't understand fractions. That was my second clue. And I thought, as a society, this is a disgrace because we always say that we love our children, we want the best for them, we want them to have good education, but we support a public school system that only really educates about 25% of the students and culturally destroys close to 100% of them. So Bob decided to do something about it. First, he took up North Carolina's Education Commission on becoming their co-chairman. My take-home was that academics will discuss any topic ad nauseum, but they have no intention of really changing. They just like academic discussions. So at some point that came to an end without any great success. And so Bob decided to try something else. In 1997, I ran for school board as a reform candidate. I won the first round, but in the second round, narrowly lost, which turned out to be a great blessing. And I decided to open a public charter school. Charter schools are public schools that are allowed more freedom to innovate. In the first weeks when I announced that we were going to have Franklin Academy, one of the local school board members came to me with me and he said, well, I want to inform you that nobody's going to go to your school except a few malcontents and misfits, and there'll be darn few of those. But we opened with 160 kids. Even better, the students liked it. They loved coming to school. So as we went forward, our waiting list began to grow. The state law requires that you have a lottery for admission. A game of chance where students are chosen at random. In year two, we began the lottery, and it grew to over 2,000 students. There are four kids on the waiting list for every one seat that is available, which means that only 25% of them will win the lottery, and 75% of them will be declared losers. Losers who are forced to go to some other school that they don't want to go to. I think it's just a luster of of tremendous pent-up demand. In business, we would call it a very strong market signal. That almost, more than any other point, describes the extreme frustration and dissatisfaction with the public school system. Bob, being Bob, hoped to serve these kids that the lottery declared losers by opening more charter schools so that no child would be left behind. But the government wouldn't allow him to. The charter school bill only allowed for 100 charters. By the mid-2005, all 100 were out. You couldn't get more charters. So yet again, Bob tried something else. 
that once again in no way benefited his family. So I met with a small group of parents in 06, talked about the idea of a private school. So by 07, I opened Thales Academy with 20 kids in our corporate office. It's now grown to 2,600 students, six campuses, and we have five campuses currently under development. And my goal was to create a large private school network that would prove there is a better way. Our theme is high quality, affordable, which essentially in the private school world doesn't exist. So we picked $5,000 for K-5 as the tuition 10 years ago. We have not raised that tuition in 10 years. For context, Washington, D.C.'s public schools cost $30,000 a kid. Many top private schools are $20,000 a student. North Carolina's public schools are $9,300 a student. And Bob's Thales Academy is almost half that. Now, from a financial management standpoint, it's a formidable task. You have all these myths of small class size. When I went to high school, there was 50-plus students in every class. It was a pretty darn good high school. So I know from firsthand experience that having 50 kids in a classroom doesn't make a darn bit of difference. Those same students, when they go to college, might be in a class of 100 or 200 or 300. Nobody's concerned about it. So the concept of small class basically is a union idea to create more jobs and make life easier on the teachers. So one of the things we have to do is have a reasonable class size which we describe between 20 and maybe 30 at the outside. We have to eliminate every potential inefficiency. So in a K-5 building, we have an administrator and an assistant administrator, and everybody else is teaching. That allows for tremendous efficiencies. Whereas in public schools, for every single teacher that they have, there's a whole other employee not teaching. Only half of their staff are actually teaching. And to conclude, I had to ask Bob, why is he still running this company and launching schools at his age? The guy's in his 70s, and he's had this wildly successful career. Shouldn't he be on a golf course somewhere? You know, for for many individuals who go into business, they aspire to get rich, retire, and enjoy the money. Obviously, I want to make money, but the things that money produces, mostly I'm not interested. So I'm not a sportsman. I don't care to to go on exotic vacations. I actually love the work. I love building the business. The money is not all that important to me, even though it is a way you keep score for any business. Uh, One of my uh, associates some years ago said, You have more money to spend than anybody we know, and you spend the least amount of anybody we know. And and the reason is that money isn't my goal. My goal is to create a great company, to have the opportunity to work with amazing people. That, to me, is my life. Going on an exotic vacation has no interest to me whatsoever. Having some exotic sports car has no interest. I believe that as your life goes on, I'm 72, 
your greatest contributions are coming later in life because you have this tremendous amount of experience. You've got a whole company behind you that you didn't have all those years. So the opportunity to serve is enormous in that time frame. To put yourself off the playing field, for me, doesn't make sense. And what a story. And we've heard this story again and again from our American dreamers, from our entrepreneurs. It's not the money. It's a scorecard. But it's the jobs. It's the company culture. It's the meaning that work brings to people's lives. Our American Dreamer segment brought to us by Job Creators Network. Bob Luddy's story. Captivaire's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Why Make It Hard? Managing people can be very complex or rather easy. It all depends on the kind of people you hire. We try to hire people who happen to want to do exactly what we need them to do. So those kind of people don't need a lot of management. We give them the freedom to do what they want to do, whether it's creating new machine vision software or whether it's uh, packaging and, and fulfilling customer orders. We find people who actually have a passion for doing what we want them to do. And therefore, we just have to tell them how much of it to do and we leave them alone. So my view on management is that manager's responsibility is to clear the decks Clear the desk of all of your people from the stuff that is bothering them, whether it's medical issues or home issues. And we try to help them solve all those issues so they can come to work as a place to escape from the rest of the world. They can escape from their day-to-day problems and just do what they want to do. And that's very true in engineering. We have, I have a senior vice president of the company who's been with me many years, and he says, Dr. Bob, I would pay you to do what I'm doing here. It's, it's that enjoyable. This is exactly what I want to do. Thank you for creating the environment and thank you for paying me and giving me stock options to do what I want to do. 
And what a breath of fresh air. If you're managing people, listen to Dr. Bob. Take his advice. I know it sounds counterintuitive and different than everything you've heard from anybody in the motivational business. But Dr. Bob's got words of wisdom. Follow him. And we have much more to come from Dr. Bob. And now we turn to our two of our favorite subjects, history and this day in history, which we do so much of with Hillsdale College, and of course, music. And that leads us to our favorite recurring segment as well, This Week in Music History with Jesse. 1967, the Turtles start a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Happy Together. Imagine me and you, I do, I think about you day and night, it's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight, so happy together. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, please my mind. Imagine how the world could be So very fine So happy together And in 1969, Marvin Gaye was number one in the UK singles chart with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. The song was first recorded by The Miracles and also had a million copies sold in 1967 for Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's the longest-running Motown number one hit in the States where it hit the top 100 chart for seven weeks. It was Gaye's first number one hit, and it made him a star. And in 1990, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee was arrested for mooning the audience at a gig in Augusta. He was charged with indecent exposure. And in 2013, Justin Bieber ran into some trouble at the Munich airport when customs officials detained and quarantined his monkey due to a lack of documentation required to bring said monkey into Germany. Bieber went on to perform in Munich while the monkey was kept in the custody of authorities. And born this week in music history, 1937, American jazz musician Herb Alpert. Most associated with the group Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Alpert was the A in A&M Records with Jerry Moss that first opened from a garage in his home. Alpert and Moss sold A&M in 1987 to Polygram Records, $500 million. Also born this week in music history, 1942, American singer-songwriter Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul, who had the 1967 U.S. number one and U.K. number ten single, Respect, plus over 15 other top 40 hits.
another born this week in music history, this time 1948, Steven Tyler, the one and only frontman and lead singer for Aerosmith, nominated for many awards throughout his career, but maybe one of the few artists in classic rock who has been nominated for a Grammy, an Oscar, and an Emmy Award. There was a time when I was so broken hearted, love wasn't much of a friend of mine. Tables have turned, yeah, cause me and them ways that parted, that kind of love was the killing kind, so listen. In 1972, Elvis Presley recorded what would be his last major hit, Burning Love. Final born this week in music history, this time in 1962, American hip-hop artist MC Hammer. He had the 1990 U.S. number one album with Hammer, Please Don't Hurt Him. It spent a record 21 weeks at the top of the charts. That's this week told you, homeboy. in music history. Yeah, that's how we living and you know This is our American story. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. Yo, let me bust the funky lyrics. Fresh new kicks and pants. You got it like that. Now you know you wanna dance. So move out of your seat and get a five girl and catch this beat while it's rolling. Hold on, pump a little bit and let the noise go on. Why you standing there, man? You 
can't touch this. Yo, sound the bell, school is in, sucker. You can't touch this. Give me a song, a rhythm, making them fat. That's what I'm giving them now. They know, you talk about the hammer, you're talking about a show that's hot and tight. Singles are sweating so fast, I'm a white 